The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born in Kyoto, Japan in 1949. Since then, he has won just about every literary prize there is to win, with one major exception. His books and stories have been translated into 50 languages and have sold millions of copies around the world. His grandfather was a Buddhist priest. His mother and father both taught Japanese literature. But he himself fell in love with Western influences, classical, popular, and above all jazz music, and European and American writers like Kafka, Flaubert, Dickens, Vonnegut, Dostoevsky, Kerouac, Carver, Salinger, and Chandler. Although he's loved and admired by readers and writers alike, there are plenty of critics, too, for every essay on his, quote, frequently surrealistic and melancholic or fatalistic novels, end quote, there's another describing the frustration and at times disaffection with the hermetic, unknowable events and symbols in his fiction. His name is Haruki Murakami. We'll talk to Mike Palindrome about his lifelong love for Murakami today on The History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. We have a great show today. Mike is here, El Presidente himself, back to talk about Haruki Murakami. Once again, 99% of what Mike says is interesting and insightful, and 1% is a complete fraud. I'll let you guess what that is. Maybe I'll give you some clues at the end. Speaking of clues, we subject Mike to a quiz today, or a couple of them. Let's see how he does. So, Haruki Murakami. It's hard to imagine a more beloved and respected contemporary author. Remember the story? I think we've told this before. Of John Grisham on Charlie Rose. And Charlie Rose said, You started out with ambitions to be a literary author, a prize winner. And Grisham said, Well, yeah, I wish I won more prizes. But I bet a lot of prize winners wish they'd sold as many books as I have. Haruki Murakami is someone who has both. He's a huge bestseller. He has a devoted following, and he has the respect of the literary community. He's one of a kind, and yet he isn't exactly. He has influences. He comes out of traditions, maybe fuses a few of them together. Once you see them, they're hard to unsee. So in some ways, they don't really matter because he makes them all his own. Okay, I know some of you probably... Oh, excuse me. Excuse me, there's someone at the door. Hello? Ooh. Hello, it's me, Lady Macbeth. Lady I'm here Macbeth. to ask you... Now, now stop! Sorry, that's my dog, Spot. His favourite dog walker hasn't shown up yet, and he's refusing to... Out! Out, you damn Spot! He's simply refusing to leave the castle without his favourite dog walker. Mm. What happened to the dog walker? Funny story, actually. I had my husband kill him. Hey. I can't remember why. Yikes. Something about a dagger. <laughs> anyway, our desperate and sweaty minion, Jack Wilson, oh. is going to procure a new dog walker. That's a little harsh. But he... Spot, if you don't get out now, I shall kick thee all the way to Dunsinane Hill. You know I would. You know I would to Dunsinane. I would to um, Dunsinane. Won't you Mr. Wilson, secure a few funds? Spot and I shall be ever so grateful. Oh, boy. It's the wicked somnambulist herself. 
who arrives, who arrives, bringing the weather. I wish we had the milk of human kindness to spread around here. We could use some in the studio. Poor Spot. You can join the the daggerous vixen herself by heading on over to patreon.com slash literature and supporting the history of literature there, or you can go to historyofliterature.com slash shop for all your swaggish needs. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer, buy a tote bag, buy a mug. What beverage do we have? How about a little green tea? I would love a hot cup to go with my Murakami. And you and I can discuss books all night while jazz music plays in the background. And once in a while, when the conversation fades, we shall get immersed in the books we have open at the table. I have Norwegian Wood, and you have The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. How's that, how's that for a good image? Very lovely. Meet me there. Here's another plug for Murakami. I think I told you about one of my mentors an American who's been living in Asia for about 30 years. He's not a literature mentor. He's a life mentor. He was a great reader, one of the smartest people I've ever known, and smart in a completely unusual way. Some might call him eccentric or bizarre. I think he was probably just too brilliant for those around him. But in any case, here's what he told me. He used to read a lot of fiction. And then one day, he was trying to recall something from an Updike novel. One thing, something or other from an Updike novel. Nicholson Baker did this brilliantly in the book You and I, by the way, if you haven't read that. That's one of the great books about reading a particular author. One of the favorite ones I've ever read. So anyway, my mentor said that he read 10 or 12 Updike novels, maybe more. And the only thing he could remember, the only detail, was that in one of the books, the aging protagonist regretted that he could no longer piss in a stream. It was just a trickle now, sign of age. I believe this was probably rabbit at rest, is my guess. In any case, that was enough for my mentor. He thought, if I've read that many novels by an author and I only recall that minor detail, then what good is fiction doing me? And he switched to nonfiction and never looked back. With two exceptions. One is, he said, whenever he went on one of his travels, and he was a a world-class traveler, one of the great travelers, someone who's been everywhere and done everything. Whenever he was on his travels, he always tucked away in his bag Graham Greene. Loved to read Graham Greene while he was traveling. And the second thing he told me, the other, the second exception is, he said, I read everything Murakami writes. He's my favorite author. There we go. The incredible Haruki Murakami, author of Norwegian Wood, Kafka on the Shore, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, A Wild Sheep Chase, 1Q84, and many others. After this.
grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, I want to say, at first I wrote down, Mike is a lifelong fan of Haruki Murakami, although I know you probably didn't read him when you were a child. But in some ways, I wonder if you feel like your whole life was building toward reading Murakami, uh, other than Thomas Mann and the Magic Mountain. Would you say Murakami is your second favorite author? Um... Maybe second, maybe favorite living author. Favorite living author. Okay. Yeah. I thought maybe you'd end up saying he was top five or top ten, but favorite living. Yeah. And uh, I I definitely look forward to reading him in a way that probably people look forward to eating, you know, dessert mm. or <laughs> going to um, a, a, a new restaurant if they're a foodie. Yeah. So, oh, right. You hear that one opens up. That's like you when you read the the news that the, the latest Murakami has been published. Yeah. So it's interesting because one of my questions for you was going to be, do you think it's the same for people who binge read him? It sounds like you space it out. So you have a year or two in between each time you read one of his novels. But I know people who have kind of burned out. You think your reading experience has been helped by the anticipation yeah i mean for instance i haven't read 1q84 oh you know so yeah. that's uh i'm i'm saving that <laughs> what are you um, saving it for i don't know maybe maybe i'll read it this year we're thinking of going to london mm. in the summer and you know i always like to pick up a copy of the book in um a foreign city mm-hmm. um get a different edition and just see you know oh, yeah which books of his they carry, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've tried to reread his works, and I think, you know, one of the things he does is he uses, you know, he go like any great writer goes back to his strengths and uses the same motifs and mm-hmm. subplots, um, mysterious cats or these weird backstories that have a supernatural element. Yeah. And I think if you if you actually read all of his stuff, if you binge read him, like you said, it might wear on you a little bit the way that books like like Philip Roth. I mean, I, th- I think he's a mm. he's an excellent writer, but 
story after story of these domestic male dramas, you know, balanced with kind of like a, not exactly a forced plot, but a really in-your-face f- plot. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you can just see the patterns, and it, it it wouldn't hit you the way it would if you had taken a break from them. Right. I found one critic, uh, Stephen Ems, who was writing in The Guardian, and I pulled out a bunch of quotes from him because his article on why he no longer reads Murakami I thought was really interesting. And mm-hmm. one of his quotes was, his surreal tales about lost souls with their inevitable choices between two different women mm-hmm. blur together. <laughs> but you see, you could say that, I mean, who is this Stephen M? Uh, what's his? I think he's like a cultural critic in Britain. Uh, you know, as Martin Amos says, all critics should get the hell out of the way of the quotes <laughs> from the text. I mean... You know, Moravia, Moravia, if you read him, which I did, I binge read Moravia, Alberto Moravia, essentially is about a guy who is lucky enough to have married a beautiful woman, but is convinced that she doesn't love him. Mm. Almost every novel has some element of that. Yeah. And it, it has to do with the insecurity of a male. Any critic can tear down... Uh, any great writer. I mean, th- th- that's why I mean, I, nothing against Stephen M's, but you know, I, I, I just, I hate these things where they say like, <laughs> well, why does he, why is he trying to write the same novel? And it's like, well, have you ever tried to write a novel? <laughs> okay. I mean, so you're, uh, you're really throwing it down here. How about this one? <laughs> uh, Kazuo Ishiguru. Yeah. You know him, right? Sure. I love his work. Love his work. He said, quote, Haruki is one of the three or four most exciting and important writers working right now, but harder to explain just why. Huh. I I guess the hard part is the important. Yeah. Because the easy part is the readability. Yeah, the exciting part. Yeah, and the fact that he is a lover of American culture, he's a lover of uh, pulp fiction, Raymond Chandler, he loves jazz, he loves America, I mean, in a way that Mm -hmm. a lot of Japanese uh, writers or intellectuals either don't or don't care to talk about. Yeah. But that aside, that cultural um, accessibility and the readability... You know, I think Ishiguro is saying is like, why, why does he matter? Mm-hmm. But maybe he, the, the, the issues that he grapples with are not, you know, capital I important. I mean, maybe the same way people knock Alice Monroe and say, well, what is she actually writing about? Mm. You know, these little insular relationships. Yeah. I mean, is that important in the way that people who write about the American frontier, like Cormac McCarthy, that's like essentially American, mm-hmm. that's something that is historical, but is Monroe historical? Clearly not. Right. Or the famous example of, uh, is Jane Austen important? How can she be so central to, you know, so central a figure in her age if she wasn't writing about Napoleon and his battlefields? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you could you could say Edith Wharton is more important historically about her depiction of New York society than Henry James depicting dilettante Europeans vacationing in Italy. Mm-hmm. What is Henry James really saying? Yeah. That people are exploring themselves when they go to a foreign country? Okay. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. I mean... <laughs> Like, uh, but I much enjoy, I guess that's my setup for why I, but I still enjoy Henry James far more than Edith Wharton, but I am going to reread Edith Wharton because of that one fan who wrote into you <laughs> and, and said that it was, she said that Age of Innocence was her favorite novel, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of I people. felt very guilty. A lot of yeah. people say that. Yeah. As a New Yorker, you sort of owe it to, yeah. uh, to your hometown. And you know, I'm, I love uh, society novels. I, I'm a big fan of Evelyn Waugh. I was re- actually rereading Vile Bodies the other day. Mm. Um, and I, I just love the shenanigans of society, people. <laughs> I mean, talk about not important at all. <sighs> I'm reminded of, I think it was John Gardner who said, if if Mark Twain had been given... Henry James's set of characters to work with, he would have quickly maneuvered them all into wells. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's back up and uh-huh. talk a little bit about your experience with Murakami. So when did you start reading him? Where were you when you discovered him? All right, so I was seven years out of college. Mm. I was okay. I was 29, and... My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was reading him, and she finished Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which many people consider to be his his best work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's over 700 pages long. Yeah. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of good recommendations from her over the years and also recommendations of what not to read. Mm. So I decided to, to read Wind Up Bird and... It's so readable. It's um, I, I was thinking teenagers must love him because mm. it, it somehow reminds you of genre fiction. Mm-hmm. But then there are these, you know, these craters that open up. Yeah. Um, so this is the beginning of Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Uh, when the phone rang, I was in the kitchen boiling a pot full of spaghetti and whistling along with an FM broadcast of the overture to Rossini's The Thieving Magpie which has to be the perfect music for cooking pasta. I wanted to ignore the phone, not because, not only because the spaghetti was nearly done, but because Claudio Adubo was bringing the London Symphony to its musical climax. Finally, though, I had to give in. Could have been somebody with news of a job opening. I lowered the flame, went to the living room, and picked up the receiver. Mm. I mean, it's... That, you know, it's funny that you picked that passage because... In some ways, that might be the quintessential Murakami passage. The combination of lovingly detailed life in suburbia, cooking, listening to music, getting simple tasks done. Uh, he's He revels in that stuff. And then it's interrupted by something that's mysterious and leads him into something that is somewhere between fantasy and reality or science fiction and reality or some mystery that needs to be unraveled or some 
some journey or quest that he's on that he's kind of pulled into by some mysterious caller or, uh, you know, a puzzle that the narrator is somehow forced to untangle. And the pacing, so the beginning is is kind of a little bit of a slow, very, it's a little bit like an opera. And then the pacing, he always, his characters often go for walks and they often run into strangers who mm-hmm. turn out to be more interesting than the narrator. And so this is what happens a few pages later. The narrator is on a walk. I turned to see a girl standing in the garden on the other side of the alley. She was small and had her hair in a ponytail. She wore dark sunglasses with amber frames and a light blue sleeveless t-shirt. The rainy season had barely ended, and yet she had already managed to give her slender arms a nice smooth tan. She had one hand jammed into the pocket of her short pants. The other rested on a waist-high bamboo gate, which could not have been providing much support. Only three feet, maybe four, separated me. Hot, she said to me. Yeah, right, I, I, I answered. After this brief exchange of views, she stood there looking at me. Then she took out a box of Hope regulars from her pants pocket, drew out a cigarette, and put it between her lips. She had a small mouth, the upper lip turned slightly upward. She struck a match and lit her cigarette. When she inclined her head to one side, her hair swung away to reveal a beautifully shaped ear, smooth as if freshly made, its edge aglow with downy fringe. You live around here, she asked. Hmm. And then she becomes his friend, yeah. he, despite the age difference. Right. The entire novel, over 700 pages, is pretty much like that. Yeah, we're pulled in. We yeah. we experience it along with the narrator, a yeah. lot of it, right? The surprises and the mysteries. And I think Murakami even said that, something about, uh, his characters experienced the novel along with Murakami, that he was surprised when he was writing it. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I would have picked him up earlier had he had he been writing in English. I think it was because, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember what I was like when I was in my 20s, but I, I definitely did not think I should be reading contemporary writers in translation. Mm. That there oh. were so many writers... <laughs> writing in English that I, I should be reading. <laughs> well, that's uh, funny because, you know, one of the things I was going to say when you mentioned getting the recommendation from your girlfriend, now your wife, I got a recommendation f- from you that came uh-huh. from her. <laughs> you know, she recommended a that's book funny. to you and then you recommended it to me. Do you remember what it was? This would be the first book that uh, I ever read that she had originally recommended. I don't. I don't remember. It was White Noise by Don DeLillo. Oh. <laughs> so she was she was putting you on the track of some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you always get such credibility when you make a wreck and the person comes back and says they loved it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes a friend will say, I liked it, but I didn't love it like you. And you're like, oh. <laughs> oh, that's horrible, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't like it as much as I think you do. Yeah. Oh, uh, they're trying to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they hated it. <laughs> well, I don't know about hated it. But... They don't want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> oh, is that something you would say? You would say it's just in the interest of being brutally honest. 
I think I just give up on a book and never bring it up. <laughs> right. Okay. So you mentioned the that he feels American. This is something that Murakami is often remarked upon is that he's this maybe the most westernized writer in Japanese and people point to a lot of the pulp pop sorry pop culture references and Kentucky mm-hmm. Fried Chicken and things like that and I found it really interesting when I was doing some research for this episode that he attributed part of that to a reaction against his father who's a professor of Japanese literature which I didn't know. Hmm, yeah, I didn't know that either. I and, mean, he worked, you know, he's translated. His, yeah. English is, his English is excellent. He's translated Raymond Carver and J.D. Salinger and F. Scott Fitzgerald into Japanese. Yeah, and you can kind of tell by the authors that he chooses to translate what his style is and what he's interested in. Yeah. Uh, those are good examples. There are some others I have here. Paul Theroux. Uh, yeah. John Irving, Truman Capote, and Chris Van Alsberg, who wrote The Polar Express. Huh. So those are interesting people that he's chosen to translate. He gets to, he's not a translator for hire. He gets to choose what he wants to translate. So yeah. his selection is pretty revealing. But, you know, there's an interesting thing. I think it goes beyond the Kentucky Fried Chicken and, you know, Beatles songs and stuff like that. I think he. Actually, maybe from his his translation or from his commitment to reading, he went through a period when he was responding or reacting or rebelling against his father where he only read American novels. And mm-hmm. I think he developed a sort of outlook or style from yeah. uh, Raymond Chandler and uh, some of the other mystery authors he was reading, some of the uh, narrative voices and I, I think that even if it's hard to to put your finger on it in any individual sentence or passage i think it is it does kind of hover over all of his work that it feels american yeah. in a way i mean just the the writing about sex is remarkable mm. the adolescent sex and in norwegian wood Mm-hmm. It, the narrator's best friend is this guy who has this incredible girlfriend, and meanwhile he just sleeps with whoever he can, and he conv- persuades the narrator to go with him to meet up with, pick up these girls, and then in the middle of the night he knocks on the the he he taps the guy and says, "Can we switch girls?" Mm. <laughs> and it's just it's just kind of out of nowhere and then they they wake up the girls and switch beds and have sex with the other girl now what what does this do i mean what you say his writing about sex is remarkable but is it that it it comes with an air of mystery and surprise he's he's fascinated by our need to socialize Mm. and whether solitude is a viable way to live oh yeah. To me, that's the existential bleakness in his fiction that people are constantly telling the narrator, like, you know, what's wrong with you? And he's like, I don't know, but I know there is something wrong with me. Yeah. You know, everyone else is socializing, ha- eating noodles late night, drinking a lot of beer. And the narrator is sort of going through the motions a little bit, but he doesn't quite like it. Mm-hmm. And I think that must appeal to teenagers and to 
to people, in, young adults in their 20s and 30s too, but especially to a Japanese audience. Yeah. Here's a quote I have from Murakami that yeah. really goes at this. I, I double-starred this in my notes. <laughs> he says, because family plays a significant role in traditional Japanese literature, any main character who is independent becomes a man who values freedom and solitude over intimacy. Wow. And he almost seems to be saying it's against his will. It's against, it's, it's not necessarily what Murakami has planned or, or believes, but that literature itself is driving him toward that because what readers' expectations will be. He knows the way that the that novels will typically work. Family will will be so valued that if you're trying to be different, what you actually end up doing is rejecting intimacy. Huh. There are real types in his fiction. Mm -hmm. The 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 company man. And there's, um, yeah. you know, people who get their haircut every two weeks and, you know, get all their clothes pressed. And, and then you have these characters that come in and out and they have such freedom. Yeah. It's invigorating. Yeah. Watching them move about. Yeah. I mean, the, the Japanese sexual repression and the Japanese uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm not Japanese and I've never been in, you know, a relationship with a Japanese woman or a man, but I, I just have this idea that there's such a right way to, to woo somebody. Mm -hmm. Mirakami just kind of tears open the cover and lets everyone see. Mm. There's a scene in Norwegian Wood where the narrator meets this girl, Midori, and she, she kind of complains about a relationship and then she talks about her parents and she says, and the narrator, who's a bit robotic, says, do you think you weren't loved enough? And she goes, she tilted her head and looked at me, and then she gave a sharp little nod, somewhere between not enough and not at all. I was always hungry for love, just once. I wanted to know what it was like to get my fill of it, to be fed so much love I couldn't take anymore, just once. But they never gave that to me. Never. Not once. And then the narrator later asks, are you waiting for perfect love? And she goes, I mean, just the fact they're having this discussion, but she goes, yeah. no, even I know better than that. I'm looking for selfishness, perfect selfishness. Like, say I tell you I want to eat strawberry shortcake and you stop everything you're doing and run out and buy it for me. And then you come back out of breath and get down on your knees and hold the strawberry shortcake out to me. And I say, I don't want it anymore and throw it out the window. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. And he goes, I'm not sure that it has anything to do with love, I said with some amazement. It does, she says. You just don't know it. And that's like, that's so Japanese to me. Mm. You know, I understand it. I understand that impulse. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that even though I read that quote about that basically by searching for freedom and solitude, you were in effect rejecting the tradition of, of family and, and rejecting intimacy, being on the other side of intimacy. He still has characters who are longing for love who are uh, devoted to love or the idea of love, or they have very particular, sometimes almost sad versions of love. If you remember me only, that will be enough. You know, that kind of thing. Everyone else can 
forget me, but if you remember me, that will be enough for me. And you feel like his characters are looking for love. It's just the universe is kind of stacked against them. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the the, the novel Norwegian Wood is ostensibly about suicide. Um, there are five suicides in it, but it's really at its core about trying to find love mm. and trying to find a perfect love. Yeah. And it, it, it's the novel that turned him into a rock star and, and, and forced him to move. He had to actually move and leave Japan. He, he lived in Berlin, Germany for 10 years after the book came out because mm. he had become so famous. Wow. They said something like 10% of Japan had read it. Is that the place you would recommend that readers would start? Yeah, I mean, I I reread, I've read this book five times. Norwegian Wood. Yeah, and <laughs> never mind the fact that there is a, a, a there's a subplot in here about a sanitarium, which, <laughs> and there is actually a reference to Magic Mountain, Thomas Mann. Oh boy, that clinched so. it. So what's what's ahead now? A heart so white or uh, Norwegian Wood? Which, I don't know. Which, which one have you read the most? Oh, Norwegian Wood. I think probably because <laughs> A Heart So White, it's a more intense book. Mm. And Norwegian Wood, you can kind of pick up and put down and, and um, kind of sink back into it whenever right. you want. Right. Um, and it's the readability. I think, you know, that probably speaks to how Mirakami is, is very readable in a way that yeah. Mireus has these uh, one-sentence paragraphs that span three pages. Yeah, Murakami goes down very easy. Yeah, I mean, the dialogue, so one of the strengths of his fiction is clearly his dialogue, and I think the rhythm between people is just perfectly captured, mm-hmm. the way someone is at an advantage and someone isn't. And like in Norwegian Wood, when the narrator first meets Midori, she goes, you, you enjoy solitude, traveling alone, eating alone, sitting off by yourself in lecture halls? And he goes, nobody likes being alone that much. I don't go out of my way to make friends. That's all. It just leads to disappointment. She mumbled, nobody likes being alone. I just hate to be disappointed. You can use that line if you ever write your autobiography. Thanks, I said. Do you like green, she asked. Why do you ask, I asked. You're wearing a green polo shirt. Not especially. I'll wear anything. Not especially I'll wear anything. I love the way you talk, like spreading plaster nice and smooth. Has anyone ever told you that? Nobody, I said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I had written down that quote, nobody likes being alone that much. I don't go out of my way to make friends. That's all. It just leads to disappointment. And I wrote freedom, question mark, intimacy, question mark. (sighs) Isn't that exactly the crux of what he's talking about there where he it's the misunderstanding of somebody's just searching for freedom you know but you don't know exactly where he stands is he does he wish he were more free does he is he longing for intimacy is he trying to act it out because that's what's expected of him what does he believe there it's the fact that you can't have such a great time by yourself i mean Mm. it's you yeah. know, no matter how much, how intellectual, and he, you know, one thing that's probably under understated in his books is how intellectual his characters are. Mm-hmm. 
they're they're super smart and they get sick of people without being too snide and too snobby about it but they you know he he has a number of scenes where people are out having fun and everyone's having fun except for the narrator (laughs) and the narrator's just thinking like you know why i'm not having fun because i can think of other things i'd like to do (laughs) and he's like i'm not i'm not being judgmental i'm just being truthful what was (laughs) what was the thing you had described one you were about to take a trip you've talked about this on the podcast maybe a listener can Uh can jump in maybe someone's listened to this episode recently if you don't remember the details because i don't remember them but you talked about your the way you like to read when you were traveling and it had something to do with uh you wanted to travel with family members but you knew you were going to sort of resent their presence but if you were oh, reading, <laughs> but if you yeah. were reading and they were kind of in the room, but you were all just enjoying your own thing, that would be sort of perfect. Was that what it was? <laughs> it, it was that I, I like to reread books when I travel because if oh, I'm reading something right. new right. and you know a family member or friend interrupts me, you know <laughs> which they should do because you're traveling with them and you're right. enjoying you know traveling with them, but to be interrupted. You know, you're just like, ah, oh. so there's something about rereading a book where you feel like, ah, eh, well, I already know what's going to happen. I, I know the suicide's coming up and yeah, but I can still enjoy it. Um, See, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I meant at the beginning when I said I felt like you had been training or preparing to read Murakami all your life. That seems like a very Murakami uh, yeah. kind of uh, sentiment to have. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe Murakami... <laughs> also appeals to a lot of people who love literature because, I mean, literature requires spending a lot of time by yourself. Mm -hmm. And David Gates also does this. I mean, a number number of writers do this. There are characters in Gates's fiction and in um, Murakami's fiction where they have had a tough day or they have a lot of shit to do and they instead sit down drink a beer and read like Herman Hesse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or um, Gates loves Dickens. They read Dombey and Son. Yeah. Instead of doing their work. And I think so, as somebody who's reading, uh, spends a lot of time by themselves, there's something about that when it's done in a way that is completely natural, that feels so safe. Like when, I, when yeah. Mirakami... In Norwegian Wood, the guy is kind of house-sitting his friend's parents' bookstore, and he can't sleep. So he goes downstairs, looks through the books, and finds a Herman Hesse book, and spends all night nursing a couple of beers and reading the book. Mm. And then the sun rises. It really kind of encapsulates what it takes to, to love literature. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I started dating the woman who's now my wife, I went to uh, her family's house. She has a big family, and I was not that used to a big family. My family is small and quiet, and hers is large and loud and active. And I was there. Everyone was home. It was a holiday. Everyone was running around and, and cooking things and catching up and doing all this stuff. And after a few hours, I just slipped away and went to the room where I was staying and 
opened up my book and thought I would spend half an hour or so reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my wife came downstairs and was like, what's wrong? Are you sick? What are you doing in here? I, I said, oh, I'm, I'm reading my book. You know, I wasn't, I didn't walk out on any conversations or anything. I just kind of subtracted myself. And she right. said, everyone is wondering where you are. What if something's wrong? And in some ways, you know, when you talk about literature, when you settle into a book and it feeling safe. Yeah. I was thinking of the story and uh, of my trip to my in-laws house and thinking no one would have cared if I were sleeping. You know, right. sleeping feels very safe sometimes too. You settle mm-hmm. in and you know you're not going to be disturbed and you're going to have this this time with yourself. But the reading felt to them like an act of aggression. You know, like you're choosing yeah. uh Charles Dickens over us. Yeah. And uh, I I saw their point, and I haven't done it since, but it mm-hmm. it does feel like I understand that impulse. Well, you know, that reminds me of something that I've observed with the whole thing with iPhones and tablets, that mm. there's something about yeah. a newspaper, when you're opening up a newspaper that is permissible, but you can't open up a paperback novel Mm. because the the novel says Mm -hmm. to the world like, Hey, I, I need something much better than your company. Yeah. Whereas a newspaper says, you know, Hey, I'm going to take a little break, but feel free to interrupt me. And the iPhone is supposed to say, Hey, we'll all stare at our phones together and we've made this pact and that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. And it's it's unfortunate that you you can stare at a phone, but you can't pull out, you know, Dickens. Yeah, because it's totally unacceptable. And like Thanksgiving, everyone can stare at their phone and they can read like yeah. article after article of crap. But if you pull out Dickens, people will be like, "Oh, what 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 are you doing?" You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you really don't want to be here, do you? <laughs> it's like you've been staring at your phone for two and a half hours. Yeah. And it's like if you pull out your phone, everyone's like, oh, okay, I get it. These things are magical and entertaining. And we all kind of, yeah. you know, we're all sort of have a bit of ADD now. And we all kind of want to check yeah. headlines and our Twitter feed or whatever every once in a while. But if you, yeah, if you were to pull out. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So you've mentioned teenagers a couple of times. And one of the things I was struck by as I was reading this, are you familiar with the author John Green? The guy no, I'm wrote, not. Uh, okay, so he wrote The Fault in Our Stars. Oh, right. And, uh, yeah. Turtles All the Way Down. Turtles yeah. All the Way Down, yeah. My so, daughter's reading that. Yeah. Okay, so I've got here uh, a handful of quotes. Some of them are from Murakami, and some of them are from John Green. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to read them, and you can guess. Uh, okay. I'm going to have you guess which is which. Okay? Okay. First one. What happens when people open their hearts? They get better. That's John Green. That is from Haruki Murakami's Norwegian Wood. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try another one. 
Okay. I dream. Sometimes I think that's the only right thing to do. That's John Green. That's from Haruki Murakami's Sputnik Sweetheart. (laughs) (laughs) Over two. Okay, how about this one? To be alive is to be missing. I guess I'm going to say Murakami. That's John Green. (laughs) (laughs) I could keep going, but maybe we should stop there. But there, you know, it has a lot of. Murakami Mm -hmm. has a lot of, if you look at what are the favorite quotes of Murakami, what's your favorite quote that Murakami has? A lot of people Mm -hmm. pick out these, uh, they're kind of pop wisdom, almost like self-help. You know, they're they're kind of vaguely philosophical, melancholy advice, you know. Really? Uh, I guess I don't get that from him. Yeah, maybe it blends in with the rest of the novel, but that's what people seem to pick out. Like, here's the most here's the most popular quote uh, from Murakami, and this is from the site Goodreads, where everybody votes for their favorite quote. Uh-huh. And his is, quote, if you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. Huh. You know? Really? And, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that John Green would say, right? But it's in Norwegian Wood. Or here's another one. Memories warm you up from the inside, but they also tear you apart. Yeah, that's that's Mirokami, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's from uh, Kafka on the Shore. I mean, you know, I, I guess I don't really stop and think of those quotes, but they probably help make it, you know, very very readable, mm-hmm. you know, because he doesn't use many adjectives and there, there aren't many, you know, dependent clauses, long sentences. And you know what both he and John Green are probably both doing, too, is they're putting these observations in the mouths of characters. So it's not like this yeah. is Murakami uh, as the Tolstoyan narrator saying, you know, all happy families are like every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way it's not him observing something about the world it's characters are trying to communicate with one another and trying to express some kind of truth or observation that they've made yeah uh okay i mean but you know this is the kind of stuff that i think of more of him like um this character is saying that her sister had committed suicide in her room and she said she i called out to her dinner is ready she was standing by the window. She wasn't in bed. She was standing by the window, staring outside with her neck bent at a kind of angle like this, like she was thinking. The room was dark. The lights were out. And it was hard to see. That's when I noticed she looked taller, taller than usual. What's going on, I wondered. Is it so strange that she have high heels on? Was she standing on something? I moved closer and I was about just about to speak to her again when I saw it. There was a rope above her head. It came down from a beam in the ceiling, and this is a great line, I mean it was amazingly straight, like someone had drawn a line in space with a ruler. Mm. The sister had hanged herself. Mm. I mean, that description, that dinner is ready, and then you see her by the window, but she looks taller than usual. I mean, it's just brilliant. Yeah. You know, and that line... I mean, it was amazingly straight, like someone had drawn a line in space with a ruler. And it's like unforgettable. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that that hits you more and, and hits you harder than some of the quotes that I had read earlier. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I mean, his writing is a real lesson in saying what you what you saying, what you mean. Mm. When I, I wrote in my notes that he has a real intelligence, but it never he's able to kind of have some perspective on his intelligence, unlike Gaddis or David Foster Wallace, who basically use their intelligence. Well, sometimes use their intelligence to say, fuck you mm-hmm. to the reader. Yeah, he doesn't do that. No, it's the scene I just described. That could have been done in, with a lot more suspense. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I don't know about suspense, but they, they could have done been done with an over-the-top over verbal intensity. And mm-hmm. he doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. I have a perfect quote that goes along with this. Yeah. Uh, this is Murakami... Uh, from his Paris Review interview. And he says, I get some images and connect one piece to another. That's the storyline. Then I explain the storyline to the reader. You should be very kind when you explain something. If you think, it's okay, I know that. It's a very arrogant thing. Easy words and good metaphors. Good allegory. So that's what I do. I explain everything very carefully and clearly. Yeah. You could say he's being self-effacing and I think he is. He seem he always comes across as very modest. Yeah. And not taking himself too seriously, which I think is one of the reasons why he's so popular. But I think it's I think he sees it as a real obligation to the reader to be clear. I read that he sometimes writes in English and translates it into Japanese to see how it mm. to see how it sounds. So he's he's very, you know, he his first love, he you know, Thomas Mann says that every writer is a failed artist at something else. Mm. And um, Murakami was a failed jazz musician. Yeah, and he owned a jazz cafe. Yeah, so, I mean, Thomas Mann was a failed composer. So, mm. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the sounds of the dialogue are great, but I, I do want to just drive home how much sex is in his novels. If mm. people are not bowled over to want to read them, but if they just they and they're they're not titillating at all. I mean, here's a, here's an exchange between two characters. Do guys think about particular girls when they masturbate? This woman asks. I gave up trying to avoid the question. Well, I do at least. I don't know about anybody else. Have you ever thought about me when you were doing it? Tell me the truth. I won't get mad. No, I haven't. To tell you the truth, I answered honestly. Why not? Aren't I attractive enough? Oh, you're plenty attractive, all right. You're cute, and sexy outfits look good on you. So why don't you think about me? Well, first of all, I think of you as a friend, so I don't want to get you involved in my sexual fantasies. And second, you've got someone else you're supposed to be thinking about. That's about the size of it. You have good manners, even when it comes to something like this. That's why I like, (laughs) that's what I like about you. Still, couldn't you allow me just one brief appearance? I want to be in one of your (laughs) sexual fantasies or daydreams or whatever you call them. I'm asking you because we're friends. Who else can I ask for something like that? I can't just walk up to someone, anyone, and say, when you masturbate tonight, will you please think of me for a second? It's because I think of you as a friend that I'm asking, and I want you to tell me later what it was like, you know, what you did and stuff. I let out a sigh. Mm. (laughs) You chose the word titillating to say that it's not titillating. It's not salacious, that's for sure. And it's not, 
uh, dirty or you wouldn't call it erotica. But there is something titillating or exciting about the idea of this desire of hers, right? Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there's oral sex. There's, you know, a lot of foreplay. This is probably a PG podcast, so I won't go into it. But (laughs) he, he really does try to capture the kind of things that, are at the heart of relationships in addition to, you know, mm-hmm. having a lot in common. I mean, they you know, people are having sex. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're comparing, they're taking notes, they're comparing against past uh, partners. And, and, you know, it's, it's refreshing to read. Well, it, and it's especially refreshing to read in the context of him where he's, he's going off into, he's taking some wild detours. And so it's nice that it would be easy for him to basically turn all of the characters into uh, Harry Potter or, you know, young adult type of uh, not sexual beings. Yeah. You know, they could just be Luke Skywalker. Maybe that's a better example. You know, as they're dealing with this labyrinth that they're trying to get to the the middle of, you could subtract that side of them just uh, because you don't want to take the risk as an author. There's a quote by him that I love, you know, talking about his humility. He said that, um, with nothing but my writing, I have made a number of human beings want to drink beer. You have no idea how happy this made me. (laughs) (laughs) Because people were saying that there's so much drinking and eating in his fiction. (laughs) Here's another one. Here's a similar one of, uh, I think this is similarly humble. And then I want to do a quick quiz with you. Another one. When asked what was the most important advice he could give to a young writer, Murakami said, quote, every time you write, ask yourself, could this scene take place in a hot air balloon? (laughs) If the answer is yes, then it probably should. (laughs) okay so here's what happened i typed in google now don't cheat by going to your computer okay i typed in google uh i already failed the john green quiz so that was right (laughs) i I have i have no pride so i typed in i was trying to figure something out and i typed Uh in is murakami and then i was gonna type in the word but before that Google started suggesting what they thought my question was going to be uh, wow. based on, you know, the searches of millions of Google users. So huh. there were four things that came up. Can, do you think you can name any of those four? What are people wondering when they type, is Murakami blank? Nobel. Oh, that's What's interesting. Because he has not won the Nobel yet. He is currently... Uh, listed as the second most favorite to win, the odds are nine to one. And yeah. the most favored author to win is one I'm hoping to do an episode on soon, Gugi Wationgo, who mm. is at six to one, and he should win. I mean, the guy, he has an amazing story. He's lived in exile. He was imprisoned, and he's he'd be a perfect Nobel winner, and his, his books are excellent. So it's not a surprise that he's the favorite. Margaret Atwood is third, 11 to 1. Javier Marias, old friend of the show, 
<laughs> is 17 to 1. And Philip Roth is 17 to 1, which is interesting because I thought people thought he would never win the Nobel. Yeah. And Martin Amos and Salman Rushdie are tied at 51 to 1. Martin Boy, Amos, they... I don't think Martin Amos is going to win the Nobel Prize. Yeah, Martin Amos is... I think if he wrote an, maybe two more... Yeah really good books maybe and maybe a kind of hemingway old man in the sea kind of thing yeah because like yellow dog and dr zorba i mean he's Mm -hmm. he's kind of he's i mean talk about re trying to rewrite old books Mm. and rushdie must be like what do i have to do to be why am i tied with this guy i mean rushdie (laughs) like like he was yeah i mean you know his life story okay so what do you think people were searching? Oh, Nobel. That was not one of the top four. Mm. Any uh, other guesses? Um, dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll tell you the four. Yeah. Tell okay. me what you think. Uh, the first thing that came up is Murakami postmodern. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think that's probably students, right? right? Trying to write a paper or trying to... Or yeah. maybe they've been assigned to read a postmodern writer and they're wondering if Murakami will count. Number two is good. I think that's readers trying to decide whether they should read one of his books. Number three, mm-hmm. literature. What? Is Murakami <laughs> literature? Oh, versus genre? I guess, yeah. Yeah. That's huh. interesting. And number four, is Murakami magical realism? Uh yeah. So well, I then, guess it's the whole oh. like mysterious animals and supernatural characters. Yeah. Right, right. It's close, but you know, you don't know, I guess, if you're trying to maybe again you've been assigned read a magical realism novel or or wondering if there's ever been one that wasn't based in Latin America or something like that. Um okay. So then I thought well, I don't know how unusual these completed sentences are. So I did a couple of other authors just to check. And this time I'm going to do the quiz the other way around. Okay. So I'm going to give you what Google completed and you tell me what author I was searching for. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Sure. Is blank, and it completed as difficult to read, Worth reading, worth it, good, and boring. Dave Foster Wallace? No. <laughs> um, Difficult to read. Worth James Joyce? Oh, that's a good guess. It's actually Marcel Proust. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then I did one other. Is blank... Alive, feminist, vegetarian, dead, and vegan. <laughs> um, Joan Didion. <laughs> Another good guess was Margaret Atwood. Oh, okay. I was going to say Margaret Atwood. It's very interesting because those are three very different collections of... Uh, adjectives or you know descriptors that these authors filled in. It made me think maybe we should do a whole show on that where we try to trick each other and and uh, <laughs> maybe it'll get old. Okay, 
So what else do we have to say about Murakami before we wrap things up here? Did we leave anything out? Anything else you wanted to add? Well, I was going to say, you know, back to your original question about binge reading that, you know, I would definitely start with Norwegian Wood mm-hmm. or Wind Up Bird and then read the other one. And then I would read um, Kafka on the Shore and then Colorless, Tezukuru, Tezaki, South of the Border, then Hard Boiled Wonderland. And then I wouldn't read anything else by him. Mm. <laughs> but I, I do have to read IQ84. So they may... and you would, would you space them out? I, I think I would read Norwegian Wood and Wind a Bird and try to read them back to back. Yeah. Um, what about his book about running? You know, uh, I, I I skimmed and read parts of it. I'm not crazy about his nonfiction, but I'm also mm. just not crazy about nonfiction by writers. Mm. Yeah. I just feel like it, it's sort of like they, 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 they burn the candle so bright trying to write their, when they write their fiction that when, I can't help thinking the nonfiction, they're sort of kind of doing it half, half-heartedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But the, the the nerve gas attack in the subway book, just the subject matter alone made me interested. So that that's another thing maybe I'll read when I'm when I haven't read them in a while. Mm. Okay, well, and for the rest of us we can jump in as you recommend with Norwegian Wood and the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to President Mike, as always, and to Haruki Murakami. Really has done a lot to advance his particular brand of not quite magical realism, not quite genre, definitely literature, at least in my opinion. Very good stuff, including the short story Super Frog Saves Tokyo, which is worth a read if you want to get your feet wet with Murakami. You can find us at patreon.com slash literature, historyofliterature.com, and our new Twitter handle, the Jack Wilson. That's J-A-C-K-E Wilson or jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E Wilson.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>